You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. And a very good morning to you. Richard Watts with you here today on another edition of Smart Arts. Uh, lots to talk about on the show. Uh, Dance Massive, the Biennial Dance Festival, is in full swing. So we're going to chat to a few different artists and choreographers today, including some who are taking dance in a direction that you may not expect. Uh, so we're going to chat to Claire Watson, the Artistic Director of St Martin's, about their immersive project involving young people making art for adults fitter, be- faster, better. Uh, I hope I've got that the right way around. I'll double-check in a sec. Uh, and um, plus, uh, Nothing to Lose, which is a show about self-identified fat dancers reclaiming some space and placing their bodies on stage. Uh, that's presented by Force Majeure. It's the final work for the company's artistic director, Kate Champion, and uh, created in associate uh, in association with uh, fat activist Kelly Jean Drinkwater. Plus, uh, on the visual art front, we're going to find out about an exhibition exploring solitude that's on at Trocadero Art Space. On the comedy front, it's not comedy festival time yet, so a couple of shows are getting in early. One of them is Funny Babe Fest at the Butterfly Club. Uh, and we're also going to find out about another exhibition, To Exist Is To Resist, uh, on at Testing Grounds for One Day Only on Friday. Uh, and also Chapel Off Chapel are celebrating their 20th anniversary. We're going to find out how they've stuck around for 20 years and what else they've got coming up. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts and my first guests for the morning have joined me in the studio. David Portis is uh, a photographer whose work I'm Here, Selfscapes of Solitude, is showing at Trocadero Art Space in Footscray from the 18th of March until the 2nd of April. So opening, kicking off next Wednesday, but the formal opening is on Saturday the 21st of March. And David, there's going to be a performance and Kind of a spoken word component to the opening, I understand. Uh, yeah, that's right, Richard. Um, part of um, the inspiration um, for this show is, is um, solitude. Well, it's about solitude. And um, one aspect of that is uh, postcards. So um, I, after a while, I started seeing the works as big postcards, basically. So I thought um, to get people involved, I would um, uh, do a public call-out for um, addresses and um, I would send postcards out to people and they'd send them back to me writing about um, uh, solitude or writing as if they are on their own so sending a postcard back so every day I check the mail and there's four or five postcards in there for me which is fantastic and I've had a great um, variety of responses so yeah it's been really and we're going to read those out sorry on um, next Saturday night. Now one of the people who uh, is involved with the project is Elizabeth Chandler who also joins us in the studio. Elizabeth good morning. Good morning to you too. So tell us about your role in this project. Well David and I have talked a little bit about solitude and um, exploring uh, different experiences of solitude and the positives and negatives of those experiences and we've spent a bit of time together 
doing some photo shoots exploring those ideas. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of solo hiking and um, and David apparently has been a bit inspired by that. Um, so I had to write a couple of postcards for him and it took me a while to get around to it so I decided I had to go for a hike on the weekend uh, so I could get some inspiration um, and uh, and I was certainly inspired. Good. Now what is it about solitude that inspires both of you both uh, in terms of uh, Elizabeth what you've written and David the, the photographs that comprise the exhibition itself? Um, for me um, it's, um, I guess I was inspired by people like Liz because I haven't really travelled on my own. So um, I was very interested when I started uh, taking these photos about um, wh- what it means to, to travel alone, what is solitude and um, wh- what it means to people, I, I guess, like Liz. And um, so, yeah, that was um, became the major focus of my photo shoots and, and the works that I'm presenting. Now, uh, having looked at some of the photographs, there's a, there is a, a kind of travelogue feel to some of them. Yeah. But what also struck me is that there's a, a resonance for me personally. I live alone. I'm one of those one in ten people in contemporary Australia who choose to live alone. Uh, and it, the, the images that I saw reinforced to me the, the difference between loneliness and solitude. Yeah, that's right. There's definitely a huge difference. And um, solitude is, is a choice people make. And... Um, uh, loneliness is uh, merely just a state of being, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I was very, very interested in expressing those aspects of solitude, and particularly in the Australian landscape. And um, I've used um, features like the road, which is an Australian obsession, and the beach, and other kind of rural Australian landscapes um, for photo shoots, and also I've made collages with figures. Um, they're figurative works with figures in the landscape. Um, and so they <coughs> they uh, would resonate with most Australian people, and hopefully they 'll evoke that sense um, of solitude, that same feeling that I had when I was inspired to do this there 's a, a great sense of, of uh, a rich sense of being I, sometimes being lost in the landscape is a, is a beautiful thing. It, it's yeah. also <coughs> kind of, I guess, is a uh, an Australian terror uh, replicated in in kind of legends down the years. The the, the archetype of the lost children, for example, oh, that yeah. you see in paintings from the 19th century. Yep. But, but maybe even more so in our busy modern world, the being able to be on your own, uh, to lose yourself deliberately in the in the landscape can can be a, a really positive thing. Absolutely, and my experience this weekend was was very much that to go out into the Australian bush by yourself is a wonderful is a wonderful thing. And people often ask me, why would you want to do that by yourself? Don't you get scared? Don't you get lonely? And actually, at those times, I feel um, incredibly calm and incredibly supported by the environment, and and I feel a part of that environment much more so than when I'm sitting on a train this morning as I was surrounded by people who were avoiding looking at each other and not a word being spoken and in fact that's a time when you feel a little bit more lonely I think. I agree it's much easier to feel lonely in a crowd particularly when everyone else is on their <coughs> mobile device or their tablet or occasionally and I applaud these people reading a book on public transport. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yes. laughs> 
So these these ideas then are being expressed visually through your photographs in the exhibition and, as we've said, also through the postcards that you've asked people to send. Yes, that's right. Now, Elizabeth, given that you've uh, written one of these postcards, do you want to give us a reading? I would be delighted. (laughs) So um, this was actually reflecting... On a trip I did last year, I um, hiked the Larapinta track in uh, the Northern Territory. And um, I did that alone, and that was a great, great experience. So, I'm here, alone, but my solitude is filled with companions. A four-hour sunrise, inquisitive dragons, the squeak of my pack, and the constant lure of the siren Mount Sonder. I'm on my way. Love me. It's almost a, not quite a haiku, but there's a, a minimalism kind of in the writing that reflects perhaps the the singular nature of the figure alone in a landscape. Yeah, that's right, and um, and that's I, I can really tell when I get these postcards that people have actually thought about um, <coughs> being on their own, being in solitude. They've they've been provoked into um, thinking that way, which is great, and and same here. So. Yeah, I've got more, another postcard if you want me to read yeah. one. This is from um, uh, Belle Collins. She doesn't mind me saying her name. Uh, in a Brussels flea, uh, I'm here in a Brussels flea market where witches used to swing by their necks above the cobblestones. I start each morning here, sifting through other people's memories and trying to start my own. I haggle in French, but get thicker and utterly confused and walk away with an amber ring I can't afford. I place it on my nightstand. In, in the street light, as I try to sleep, the ring glows like honey. So, David, by incorporating these ideas of, of solitude from, from friends who you've contacted mm-hmm. um, and then also reflecting those in the images, I'm curious to know, because I believe you have a background in music composition. Yeah, that is right. Richard, um, yeah. to, to what degree has that notion of composition and sound become reflected in your photography? Um, I think it's it's a major part when you see the works. You can see that they're composed works um, that I've really thought about um, colour and um, trying... Um, my I guess my composition practice is kind of minimalism. I wouldn't say these photo works are, are minimalist, but you can certainly see um, the influences there of uh, just uh, simple contrast and um, juxtaposition is another feature of these works. But definitely... Um, they are very accessible, and that's the same with my composition practice. So you can look at them and get something out of them, or you can look and see a little bit more. So well, I certainly suspect that when people go along to the exhibition, I'm here, Selfscapes of Solitude, they'll see themselves reflected in some way, particularly if they're people who enjoy being on their own, whether they're introverts or whether, like some of us, you just need to get away from the madding crowd mm. and lose yourself in the landscape from time to time. The exhibition is on at Trocadero Art Space, Level 1, 119 Hopkins Street, Footscray. David, Elizabeth, thanks very much for joining us. Thank thanks, you, Richard. Richard. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Nothing to Lose is the latest production from 
Force Majeure. Uh, it had a very successful season at the Sydney Festival earlier this year uh, and is now on at the Cooper's Malt House in South Bank uh, from the 11th until the 21st of March as part of Dance Massive. Joining us to tell us more about the work, uh, Kate Champion from Force Majeure uh, and Artistic Associate Kelly Jean Drinkwater. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. So, Kate, let's start with you. This is a work which uh, works on a number of levels. It's a dance piece. It's also a fairly political work in some ways, or a socio-political work. It's reclaiming the stage for larger-bodied people, and it's reclaiming the word fat, which is a culturally loaded term, which some people shy away from in fear, and other people, perhaps such as yourself, Kelly Jean, embrace. Mm -hmm. What was the genesis of this work? Well, um, I often say it didn't, it wasn't a light bulb moment. It was uh, over some years socially observing, or finding myself, my eye drawn to what was often the larger, fatter person on the dance floor, really owning their movement, and thinking... I don't see that on our, uh, our dance stages, our professional dance stages. And then realising how much, how I've often seen dancers uh, in their late teens be excluded from dance lessons once their bodies develop in a way that isn't seen as being accepted for the ideal dancer's body. So anyway, I've been in productions where there's been one larger fat dancer, but I thought, what if you filled the whole stage? only fat dancers, undeniably fat dancers, and explored how they move, how their bodies, how I could play with that choreographically, and then also, you know, delving into their personal stories for material, to generate material. So it really came out of that. And then I thought as well, well, I'm not fat. I really need to find someone who has the lived experience of that so it can work from an authentic, authenticity and truth. So, Kelly Jean, when you, I'm assuming you got a phone call at some point or an email to say, yeah. would you like to be involved? Tell us about that. Um, yeah, so I had um, just been uh, premiering a documentary I, I made um, two and a half years ago at the Mardi Gras Film Festival called Aqua Porco, which was the story of the, a fat femme synchronised swimming team that we started in Sydney and then it grew to have chapters and there was a Melbourne chapter and um, I made a documentary um, uh, with a co-director with Anna Helm, who, uh, which was about this reclaiming of the pool and the public swimming pool as fat women and the wonderful, joyous camp spectacle of that. Um, and Kate had been researching, trying to find uh, an artist that uh, had the lived experience and um, of being a fat person and also was engaging in that in their work. And then so Kate Googled me and came to the uh, premiere and then we had coffee about four days later. There was this glorious photo of Kelly Jean a la Grace Jones in a gold all-over lame. lame suit <laughs> in one of her more famous poses and uh, yeah I thought I've got to talk to this chick. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly then been a, a productive conversation because it's gone on to generate the work itself uh, which I'm sure is not only aesthetically rewarding for audiences who attend but for many people might perhaps trigger a light bulb moment about their own prejudices towards people or their own fears as well. Is that something that you wanted the work to do? Yeah definitely it's not um, I don't want it to be didactic it's not a you know singular message but I hope that if people come with a narrow view of how they judge fat people that if anything it opens up more questions makes them reflect on their on potentially that narrow attitude and see fat people in a more complex light than i think has been shown on them in the past yeah 
Kelly Jean, why is the word fat such a, a challenging one for people? Yeah, it, well, I mean, I think it is such a powerful little word, isn't it? And, um, you know, it's because it, it, it's such a tiny little word that says volumes about how we are conditioned to believe that bodies should exist. And, um, and I think that, you know, uh, body shaming and being aware of this ideal body and all the implications of that is something that's so ingrained in us as a society, especially in Western society, that, um, you know, the idea of being unapologetically fat or uh, taking up space as a fat person or dare we grace the stage with our bodies and, and talk about that in a dance context is so um, incredibly powerful. Like, it's it's so controversial for people and so unexpected. Um, you know, I think that there's a myriad of reasons why, um, you know, uh, fat is such a... a, a complex conversation and I think a lot of that's driven by uh, mass pharma and the medical industries and the media and you know this idea of keeping people obsessed with how they look so that they're not worried about what the government's doing perhaps or you know like there's many many schools of thought as to why Um, but I think it's an incredible incredibly fascinating um, I'm fascinated by the way that we are still so very obsessed with this I like with uh, with the sort of size debate and body image as a culture and I think that it's vast amounts of material for us to work with you know in terms of inspirationally for the show is especially you know and you know the other thing is it's it's and a really good opportunity for us um, to to talk about the the individuality of these people and the performers in the show because quite often fat people are given that kind of one lived experience and and here we have seven individuals with very very different relationships to their bodies um in, engaging and offering that on stage which is really fascinating now kate am i right in thinking that you've not recast the entire show for the Melbourne season, but you did seek out kind of new Melbourne participants. For uh, we have the seven core. We wouldn't be able to recast it. It's taken us, you know, over uh, spanning two years of development stages and research to get to this point. But we do have a finale where we add another eight dancers to the seven core. And um, in Sydney, we were keeping that a surprise, but we realise now it's performed. We may as well <laughs> let the cat out of the bag. So we uh, auditioned locally and found eight, eight Melburnians to join us. Now, in terms of the, the, the variety of stories that are, are told, um, really, that's one of the things that intrigues me about this work. As you just said, Kelly Jean, that diversifying the narrative beyond yeah. just the, the one assumption about or the one uh, narrative that is kind of placed upon fat people. That's right. Um, I'm a gay man. I'm overweight. I, there's, I still kind of, despite the fact that I'm confident and, uh, and 47, I can walk into a gay bar and... Well, which I don't go do very often, I must admit. The music's awful. Uh, but, um, but if I do go in, I'm aware, A, that I'm challenging a stereotype because I'm, I'm closer to not, 50 yeah, and I'm not, not kind of, I'm not a big, buff, beefy right. kind of muscle queen, for sure. example. Now, this is another complex conversation, the, the male versus female perception of body and needing to define yourself as fat or uh, we actually found it hard to find men in the auditions to um, and I think within the gay culture there's a there's a whole bear community but then that doesn't necessarily represent. mean that they represent um, their associ- an association to the word fat it's a it's a bear and there's yeah. status within that and it, it, it's almost like the the taboo around using the word death or dies you hear people saying oh passed on passed away mm. whatever yeah. uh, and it's kind of like the bears might be no I'm not fat. I'm, yes. I'm burly I or I'm beefy. Yeah, or I'm beefy. Yeah. I'm strong and powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one when you talk about um, how people 
reclaim the word, I think. And, um, you know, I think it's a lot of there's a lot of kind of pathways to that and but in terms of you know the the different ways that people talk uh, relate to their bodies in the cast i mean i think one of the perceptions is this that that we all have the same experience like you said one of which is something that's temporary and we're desperately all trying to lose weight um and i think that that's that like you say this that's the work that's the perception put upon us what we've done here with nothing to lose is make a show about the fat experience in close collaboration with fat people about their lives and i think that's what's really different about this show and why it's taken off and sparked some interest in people because it's 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 a collaborative, authentic experience, and and we really kind of wanted to um, bring out that that individual individuality in the cast, and yeah. Kate, uh, in terms of individual individuality, for you as a choreographer, this must be a, a unique and fairly individual experience in terms of advancing your choreographic practice, in terms of working with the bodies of these dancers, which are very different to the stereotypical dancers' body, as we mentioned. Absolutely, earlier. they've just got more to work with <laughs> really <laughs> but um, we also chose the cast have most of them have already gone through a process of really uh, not feeling shy in public basically they own who they are and they own their movements so when I would give them tasks I was quite blown away with how um, confident they were with their what they wanted to do with their body and they would go as you know further than a lot of it was interesting because a lot of dancers with um, more svelte figures ha- have been more self-conscious with some subject matter I've tried to explore um, which is fine but these this cast were really um, open and incredibly offering of, of such a range of possibilities and yeah their, their bodies move differently I can't if I try and imitate some of the moves it just doesn't look as good it doesn't you know they can um, play with sensuality we gave a task once that was to um, go from grotesque to beautiful and back to grotesque and what an individual thinks that is, and particularly these individuals, is fascinating. Mm. Um, the other thing that strikes me too is that there's perhaps an assumption uh, amongst some members of the community that fat equals unhealthy or equals a weakness, whether yeah. physical or mental. And my understanding is that you found real strength in the performance. Yeah, absolutely, as well. and flexibility and stamina. I mean, we all have a range, you know, of health. Um, issues and some are invisible and I think there's an assumption with fat people because it's more visible that it's associated with the lack of health and that's uh, you know I, there couldn't be anything more healthy than what these performers have been doing over the last three months and we have hardly you know we've had niggling but not major injuries we've had no stamina problems and they've embraced the various techniques of dance that we've explored um, it's a wonderful thing for me because a lot of experienced dancers have already been through all all of that discovery by the time I work with them whereas these performers hadn't been allowed that. They hadn't done contact improvisation. They hadn't put their body weight, they'd given their full body weight onto another person who happens to be as large as they are. And so the liberation of that, even lifting them slightly off the ground, was like, oh, my God, I've never, <laughs> ever been lifted. I mean, it's been really, you know, I think uh, because this is such a rare opportunity for us as performers, it's been really interesting to, like, you know, we've, we've kind of, we've, we have a certain freedom in this because it's, it hasn't been done before. We haven't really thought of ourselves in this way as sort of uh, movers in this way. So the normal conventions that might happen in terms of what's expected of us were just not there. So we really could just go to town and uh, yeah, and, and, I, and see what happens. It was really And I wasn't trying to... It's not that I... Being a dancer myself, I perfectly understand the decades of training and almost Olympic athlete star, uh, standard that a lot of dancers achieve. And it's I wasn't asking these performers, who obviously don't, 
train professionally every day to achieve the same aesthetic and vocabulary that, say, dancers in professional companies. I wanted to explore what they do with their body that is inherent and authentic to how they move. So we're not trying to do Mm. the vocabulary that you would see on a conventional dance company. What are the conversations like in the theatres afterwards, after the shows? Because that's one of the things that strikes me a show like this is going to... It's already generated a lot of media attention uh, and critical discussion kind of within the broader art sector. But um, surely the the cooler test, so to speak, is the buzz in the theatre afterwards. What's that that been like? Yeah, a lot of people directly after the Sydney shows were like like visibly moved and quite overwhelmed. Quite a lot of people in the audience were... Very relieved, like like they felt this sense of um, sort of gratitude and 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 almost like oh thank God that happens like it's been about time. But my favourite reaction was that people quite often speechless in such a way that they were so emotionally triggered or not triggered that's a terrible word but they were so emotionally engaged or moved that they couldn't speak to me, which I thought was an incredible win for us because if people are that engaged by work and moved by that that they don't have words yet, um, that was for me was wonderful and I would I asked them to talk to me later and and they would email me and and talk about the show. I guess a lot of people you're talking about also uh, fat people, oh, people from the fat community. That I know, yeah. Yeah, whereas I would talk to people who were, oh, you know, I have to admit I did come, I didn't think I came with some prejudice, I didn't know what to expect, it's made me think a lot more, it's made me question a lot more. So, yeah, there's quite a myriad of responses. Well, and I think if we can get people to question their own attitudes in a deeper way, then, then we've achieved something. Absolutely. Look, I'm seeing the show tonight. I'm yeah. really, really looking forward to it. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what it... Uh, what the response is, my emotional response to the work, which I, I can always value an intellectual response, but for me it's when a, a work hits me emotionally that I know I, I've really connected with it. So uh, the production is called Nothing to Lose, uh, presented by Force Majeure, uh, Kate Champion's final work as artistic director. But, Kate, I get the feeling this is a work that's going to be staying with you for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, you know, I've... I always believe we're touring when we're on the plane, but there has been a lot of interest in it, so I will I will stay connected to the show, for sure. After today's conversation, uh, as I said, I was already looking forward to the work. Now I'm really, really looking forward to the work. We also joke that Dance Massive has always been waiting for us with its title. <laughs> <laughs> Very appropriate indeed. Kate and Kelly Jean, thank you so much for joining me here at Triple R today. Thank, thank you, you, Richard. You're tuned to Smart Arts on Triple R. Richard Watts with you here, taking you through until midday today. Another work that's on as part of Dance Massive that I'm also looking forward to seeing is Fitter, Faster, Better. Um, now, it's my understanding that this work has already sold out. So um, think of this as an, this following interview as an opportunity in uh, making you jealous, whetting your appetite. And, you know, with these things, people book tickets and sometimes don't turn up. So there's always a chance that were you to rock up to St Martin's for a performance of Fitter, Faster, Better, you might be able to squeeze in. Um, We're joined in the studio by Claire Watson, the Artistic Director of St Martin's, who uh, is working on this production. Claire, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Now, this is 
a very different approach to dance. It's looking at the physical mm. side of, 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 of performance. Um, it's a work that continues the St. Martin's focus of young people making work for adults. Yeah. And this is not the kind of dance physical theatre work where you sit quietly and watch. This is an immersive work in which you participate. It is. There's kind of two levels. Like there's a participation level and then certainly there's also the level where as people are sort of watching from the outside there's definitely a kind of dance experience going on for the observer as well. But absolutely, the people who come along um, to participate in it are moving a lot. They've got the idea behind it is that we have uh, one-on-one personal trainers who are all under 13, and they have an adult each that they sort of put through, put through put the through hoops. Put through the hoops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, given how exhausting I am, any time I've, I've had to babysit, a, kind of, I don't know, a, a friend's small child yeah. or one of my nieces when they were younger, I know what the energy levels of most children are like, and the notion of being put through the hoops by them <laughs> is quite frankly terrifying. It's quite. They do, they do have a lot of energy. Um, they're, they're also, though, we've gone through a process of um, talking about how they might kind of encourage and um, su- suggest ways of moving for their adults and give that the adult gets to choose whether they have an easy, medium or difficult workout as well. So you, we're not going to push anybody beyond their limits, but definitely ask people to reach their limits. So why create this work? Yeah, it, um, I was jogging and I was jogging up a hill and I was jogging you know feeling like I was doing you know my good human duty and I jogged past a primary school and it was lunchtime in the primary school and as I looked in every child that I could see was running and they were laughing and they were talking and I thought what is it like I was laboring up this hill out of duty and these kids were just having fun I was like what actually happens to the body and the mindset from that place to you know that the adult place so that was the initial point of investigation um and then the other thing that i'm really interested in and we're doing a lot of um in all of the work that we're doing at st martin's is looking at um ways in which we can kind of invert the hierarchy and put kids in charge so this was a really nice way of marrying those two ideas to me yeah. Mm. Look, and that's, as you say, that from a, an initial point of investigation, that's a fascinating one. Why do we go from laughing with glee as we run about, whether it's mm. playing Chasey or Tiggy or, or um, uh, pretending to be an aeroplane, whatever it may be, yeah. to that notion of it being kind of a worthy chore that we have to labour through? And we pay a lot of money for as well. It's a really, you know, it's, an, it's a big industry. And I think, I mean, Kelly Jean was talking about that a little earlier on, the idea of um, the the sort of perfect body that that we've all kind of we're trying to achieve and actually it's a huge industry around that so I I think that's part of it and I also think from the age of about five we get told to sit down um, and, you know, that, that changes the way we engage with our body. And that's partly because the idea of the brain, uh, the brain's held much higher aloft than the body. The body is kind of a vessel for the brain. So we, th- we think of these two things as two different parts of ourselves. Um, and in actual fact, it's all just the one thing. We're just a big clump of atoms, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> and atoms and chemicals and yeah. everything. So yeah. But also that notion of being told to sit down is, strikes me that then there's also a feminist element to that as well because Mm. young boys are encouraged to run around and make noise and be boisterous, literally. Um, And with uh, uh, footballers held up, for example, as the Mm. physical ideal, Mm. young women, uh, uh, girls are told to to be polite, be feminine, sit down, don't 
make noise. Yeah. Don't be physical. Yeah, or, or indeed wear these shoes that are going to make your toes bleed when, you, when you're actually engaging in some kind of physical activity. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is definitely very kind of gender neutral. And we're really enjoying the idea of um, getting boys training women and getting girls training men and sort of making sure that that's happening, um, yeah, kind of across the field. Yeah. And let's talk more also about mm. this notion of, and it's something we've discussed before on the program, yeah. but the notion of children as cultural agents. Yeah. Because we hear so much, but anybody who works in the art sector hears about kind of young people or the audiences of the future, recruit them now, get them in early and so on. Yeah. Which does ignore the notion to a degree of children as not just consumers of culture but creators of culture as well. Yeah, I guess that's what we're just working with the premise that, um, that, that it's not just about inheriting but it's about inhabiting culture and, and actually children have um, wonderful creative ideas. I mean, they're, they're significantly more divergent thinkers than any adult because most of the, us have had that beaten out of us. Um, but, you know, children have, have got it in spades. So actually being able to work collaboratively with children is sometimes chaotic. In fact, it's almost always chaotic, but it's also wonderfully inspiring. Like, I find that I will kind of bring an idea to the table and it will kind of be improved tenfold by the the sort of engagement with the kids. How has this work, Fitter, Faster, Better, evolved and changed through the, the participation, participation and the advice of the kids involved? Um, well, it, it really started as a premise, this one, um, and that's all that I took to the kids. We had one development and then um, I've been working with a group of 12 uh, kids aging from the 8 to 13. And um, it, it really has been entirely their construction. So they've got things like, you know, those little chatterbox games, the sort of folded paper games where they've got colours and numbers on them. Oh, yeah. One of them Ooh, kind okay, of... Child flashback. <laughs> okay, exactly. So one of them kind of came up with that as a way of um, doing a, a kind of circuit, like a fitness circuit. So we've involved that in it. We've talked about um, different songs that they love listening to and I've incorporated all of them. And then one of the things that I guess I've brought to it too is to try and make the adult participants... Um, reflect on their childhood exactly as you've said so we've both got we're using music both um, contemporary music that the kids are really into like Sears Chandelier but we're also kind of harking back to things that maybe you and I might have listened to or uh, performed to as children like Nutbush Okay. Yeah. It really strikes me that in, in many ways this work uh, is going to encourage adults to reclaim a sense of play and the idea of playing rather than yeah. kind of grim exercise. That is the ideal. That's exactly what we're aiming for. And I, I have a funny feeling we're going to achieve it. <laughs> now... Claire, given that it has basically booked out, yep. there, is there the opportunity, you think, to remount the work at a later date or to extend the season? Look, I, absolutely. Um, but I'd also encourage people, if they're interested, to just come down and, and watch. Um, and we don't think that that's creepy. We we really understand that what we're creating is a participation experience for those people involved. But what they're creating, in turn, is a dance for everybody to stand around and watch. So you're more than welcome to come down at 6 o'clock at Malt House. Uh, so, fitter, faster, better is happening in the forecourt at the Cooper's Malt House, 113 Sturt Street, South Bank. Uh, but Claire Watson, just before I let you yeah. go, um, I wanted to ask you about what rhymes with cars and girls because you've directed it. Um, it's 
a delightful show. It is lovely. Any, any chance of a remount of that at a later date? Or uh, any, has there been interest from any interstate companies about touring it? Uh, th- there may have been whispers that I'm not allowed to mention on air, but <laughs> um, look, it's been such a wonderful experience creating that work and getting the opportunity to collaborate with Tim Rogers and bring his solo album to life on stage. Um, and it's been a really interesting... I've not worked um, to, to kind of direct a, a musical per se before, so it's been a very, very interesting thing, kind of creating this play with songs and trying to find integrity for the music in, in the work, and I feel like we've we've achieved that. And, and it's been uh, one of those processes that's just been kind of full of love. So, yeah, it's Which- been great great play to work on. Sounds like a, big, a good way to describe fitter, faster, better as well. Full yeah. of love. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Claire Watson, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Richard. Richard Watts with you here today. Let's talk comedy. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is steaming towards us like some giant monolithic beast that will crush (laughs) all in its path, Um, which is a slightly melodramatic way of saying, while the comedy festival's on, it can be hard for other comics to get kind of airtime and attention if they're not part of the festival, which is perhaps why Funny Babe Fest, Melbourne's funniest women, uh, are doing five nights at the Butterfly Club before... The Comedy Festival strikes me as an excellent idea. We're joined by Merrilee McCoy, who's organised this, who's going to tell us more. Hello. G'day, Richard. So lovely to be back in the Triple R studios. So, um... Why put together this this lineup? Well, is it partly just to get in early and say, "Hey, look at us!" Before the comedy festival gets into gear. What's yeah, the story? it's a little bit of that. It's also, you know, what it actually, and I'm not lying. It came to me in a dream because I was actually planning a different project that wasn't. It was grinding a little bit and wasn't coming together, and I um, had a dream about putting together a festival of funny women, and I woke up and I was like, that is a great idea. And so I actually just sort of started contacting a few people and saying, you know, do you think this would be something people would be into? And um, the response was just epic. I I hadn't anticipated... um, I basically had twice as many submissions as spots that I could fit in, but yeah, it just it was it was just timing. Everything kind of came together very easily, and I thought, well, what a great opportunity for a lot of these women to um, get on stage before comedy festival and um, road test the material. Yeah, yeah, and also just um, for me, it's about providing a platform for alternatives alternative comedy I guess so there's more than just stand up um, oh thank god because for me like I, you know I think there's some very very talented stand ups out there and a lot of them are my friends but I also feel like the fa- my favourite stuff is quite offbeat and character based so I know there's not always opportunities for that kind of comedy to uh, be put up on a lot of the lineup nights and things like that, and, and particularly there seems there does seem to be the assumption t- sometimes that comedy is stand up, mm, uh, yes. and and that's what comedy is. So yeah. anything that breaks that stereotype down and presents some alternatives, and like you, I love a good stand up show, mm. but the problem is by the end of the comedy festival, for example, um, you've seen so much stand up that you're desperate for someone yeah. <laughs> to tell a story or to do some improv or do some 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 cabaret, something that is different or and ex- and more experimental or more challenging. Yeah, definitely. And and for me, like, that's definitely the heart of the project. Um, it's almost, <laughs> to me, like, the variety factor was almost more important than the fact it was all women. Like, it just, <laughs> it's kind of like I'm going, here's a bunch of funny stuff, and by the way, it just happens to be women. <laughs> 
Now, uh, I'm going to fold my arms and look at you and mm-hmm. say, but women aren't funny. Oh, come on, Richard. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I believe that. But, yeah, I think, you know, there, there is still that weird pervasive belief amongst some people. I'm sure not Triple R listeners because, you know, we're all intelligent and wonderful people. But I, I know that there is still that feeling like anxiety around, oh, it's just going to be period jokes or are they going to talk about their uteruses or being women? and As opposed to men talking about their dicks, oh, which constantly. is somehow hilarious, but a uterus isn't. And there's yeah. still that sense of, um, you know, inequality, I guess, in, in what's acceptable um, in, in stand-up and in comedy in general. But, you know, I can fully... 100% guarantee you there may be some period stuff in there, but there is a whole lot more in the lineup. Like, there, there's going to be puppetry, okay? <laughs> Surely. Now, and it's also, I think, important to note that comedy is still very much a male-dominated art form. Mm. Uh, you go to any of the regular comedy rooms around Melbourne and... If you're lucky, there are maybe two women on the bill compared to th- three or four men. More yeah. often, it's one woman and, say, four or five men or something like yeah, that, and which is not to diss the organisers of the uh, who are putting these rooms together. I know a lot of them personally, and I know they strive to get more women mm, on the bill. Yeah, yeah. But statistically, it's an art form in which men do dominate. So, again, yeah, anything definitely. that provides an alternative to that by, in this case, um, having an all-female lineup. Yeah. Thumbs up from me. And I think that it's, um, you know, a lot of the feedback I was getting from um, people who were sending me um, submissions of acts was, you know, thank you for providing a space where I can do my weird character piece or, you know, my burlesque or whatever it is that isn't normally, can't normally find a home in some of those lineup shows. And also, you know, I have had a lot of feedback from the women who I've talked to through the process of putting this together who do echo what you're saying that, you know, there is, it's still a challenge to get up and and to have that space held for women um, on stage in comedy. So, you know, eventually it will turn, I think. <laughs> it will. And look, it's, it, the situation is better than it was 10 years mm. ago, and in another 10 years it will be even better. Yeah. Funny Babe Fest is happening at the Butterfly Club, and if you've never been to the Butterfly Club before, shame on you. You have to go. You have it's to go the there, best. Admire the collection of kitsch, have a cocktail, uh, and in this instant, see some bloody funny women. So um, who's performing? There, uh, I've got over 30 acts performing. So there's an average of like four or five acts every night so we really i'm packing it into the hour uh because oh there were just too many and i didn't want to say no to people because they were so amazing so there's um a whole range there's some stand-up from um, people who you'll probably be familiar with like lisa sky and tegan higginbotham and then we've also got some people doing character pieces. Uh, my good friend Amanda Buckley does a really wonderful uh, character called Haley Burton, uh, who's the perennial understudy, um, and she'll be hosting one night. I've also got Basher. I don't know if you're familiar with Basher, who's a clown, uh, clown character. Um, who else? Oh, gosh, the Cheese Girls, who I'm really excited about, who do sort of comedy burlesque. Um, Fenella Edwards, who does... Puppetry and rapping. Cool. <laughs> and Sarah D, who does dance. And she actually just pitched it to me as stupid dance, and I was like, five minutes of that will be great. <laughs> Funny Babe Fest, as we said, is happening at the Butterfly Club. It's on from the 17th until the 22nd of March. The Butterfly Club is located at Carson Place off Little Collins Street, around the corner from the Melbourne Town Hall. Yes. If you've not been there It's very before. convenient. Produced and promoted in the studio right now, uh, my guest, Merrilee McCoy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I hope it's awesome. It's going to be kick-ass. <laughs> 
Richard, what's with you here? I uh, gave a plug to Playlist, which is happening for one night only tomorrow night, Friday the 13th of March. It's the Red Stitch fundraiser that features uh, short plays uh, and, and live music and more. Um, I gave all the details, but I forgot to give the website as to where you can get tickets, I just realised. So you should go to redstitch.net forward slash playlist for all the information, uh, all the artists and everything else, including uh, how you can uh, kind of book... Um, uh, yeah, so redstitch.net forward slash playlist. Get along tomorrow night. It's going to be good. Something else that's going to be good tomorrow night, and I reckon you could probably do both. You could go to Testing Grounds first at 1 to 23 City Road, South Bank, to check out the exhibition To Exist is to Resist by Jess Aritzi before you then head off to Playlist, or you could head off somewhere else. You can make up your own mind. You don't have to do what I tell you. But uh, we're going to hear more about To Exist is to Resist now because Jess Aritzi joins us here in the studio. Jess, hey, how are you going? Well, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Now, um, you uh, went off to uh, the, the West Bank in occupied Palestine last year, yeah, vol- volunteering but also documenting people's lives in the area. That's true. Uh, I was actually travelling through Europe last year, so I didn't specifically go there. I somehow, I guess through a course of coincidences, ended up spending the last two months of my travels uh, in the West Bank and kind of went there not really knowing what to expect and was quite fortunate to get involved with some grassroots volunteer organisations. And you're now putting on an exhibition for one night only of uh, the photographs that you took with, a, I believe, an old 35mm camera. Correct, so, yeah. Very retro. Well, it <laughs> didn't plan to be retro. It was a very conscious decision I made when I started travelling, whether to take my digital or my analogue camera. And uh, Yeah, it wasn't without its... its Restrictions, and you know, by the end of my time there, I was like, God damn it, I wish I had my digital camera. Because upon receiving the photos back, you know, there were a few problems like light leaks coming in and you know, grainy film that I didn't really know was going to be so grainy. So, but you know, that's all part of the uh, the joy of analog, I suppose. And I do love analog photography, there's something about the that the the handmade nature of it and sometimes the look of the images as you say the graininess of, of uh, uh, film stock for example that can certainly enrich a photograph rather than the the cold sheen of digital yeah that's true so hopefully uh, it does come across in that way <laughs> now what was the experience like uh, being in the West Bank and what did you expect going in and how did the reality of life there differ to what you expected? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, part of the the reason why I wanted to go there as well was because, you know, what we hear in the media and stuff is somewhat of a skewed version of of life over there. And I guess as a photographer, I was interested in in going there and kind of, you know, finding beauty in, in the place. And yeah, it was amazing just the people that I met, the experiences that we shared, uh, had a hugely profound impact on me, you know. So um, hopefully, I mean, the, the exhibition is essentially a personal account of, of my time over there and the people that I met, but it's also hopefully an informative evening as well for people that, you know, don't really know much about Palestine. So, I mean, one of the things you're documenting is essentially the lives of people um, who, uh, who are, whose land and lives themselves are essentially occupied and subjugated. Yeah, correct. And... Um, you know, one of the, the biggest things that I discovered whilst being over there, I, I was fortunate to spend time in about three different communities, and I sort of realised that each community who faced their own sort of challenges with the occupation also resists the occupation in, in very different ways, and that was something that was 
uh, really apparent to me. So, for example, the first week I was in the Jordan Valley, which is uh, quite a, an arid, deserty sort of part of the West Bank. It sort of borders with Jordan. And, you know, they have a lot of troubles with water restrictions, uh, demolitions of houses and schools and things like that. And, and their motto at this uh, solidarity group that I, that I volunteered with is to exist is to resist. And that was actually the catchphrase that was just playing in my mind for the two months that I was there because their way of resisting is to simply, you know, stand their ground, keep rebuilding their homes and basically, you know, despite how difficult the living conditions are made for them, they just remain on their land so you know that was one way that they're resisting the occupation um another village that i spent you know quite a lot of time in uh is belain which um is kind of on the map because there was a documentary made about the weekly protests that happened there called five broken cameras and i discovered that in this particular village you know a way that they demonstrate their resistance to the occupation is to gather every friday and and march you know and basically demonstrate uh, through through protest, so yeah, it's it's hopefully uh, the photos sort of show the different you know communities that I spent time with and how they have their own ways of, of resisting the occupation. So now uh, you're exhibiting, as we've said, the exhibitions that you took, uh, but in a slightly different format from what people might expect. So instead of photographs hung on the, the wall of a white cube in a gallery space, you're projecting the works, um, uh, and then you're also showing uh, video works by Palestinian artists as well. Correct. So the, the evening is kind of in two parts. So at Testing Ground, there's uh, the gallery space, which is uh, these shipping containers so that's where the projected images will be um i'll also be selling a photo book that i've made um with sort of a a piece of prose that i wrote whilst i was there which i feel you know um sort of describes my personal experience of you know being over there um yeah so there'll be projected images there'll be photo books and postcards i also brought back some palestinian embroidery with me as well that um is supporting one of the families that i stayed with so i'll be selling limited supplies of embroidery there so that's the first part of the evening and then the second half from nine o'clock will be so testing ground is an outside space so the uh, screenings will be outside from nine o'clock and that's, yeah, just showing a selection of different Palestinian artists and, the you know, sort of various ways um, that they're sort of expressing themselves through the arts. So there's a spoken word piece. Um, there's, you know, like a dance piece. There's a, a short animation, like a 30-minute animation. There's also an introductory documentary about the Janine Freedom Theatre. So I have a, a, a guest speaker who is from the Janine Freedom Theatre that will be talking about his experience there. So, yeah, it's kind of a... Uh, yeah, I don't know, a mishmash of <laughs> different things. A collage. A collage, thank you, yeah. yes. Um, so this is all happening uh, at uh, this Friday, the 13th of March, at Testing Grounds, which is 1 to 23 City Road. It's tucked behind the Art Centre, just next to the Australian Ballet Building, uh, and is happening from 7pm this Friday night. Now, just to ask you a devil's advocate question... Um, there's always the risk with a project like this that even with the best of intentions, you going in, um, you're in a privileged position, you get to leave and come back to Australia and show this work. How do you avoid showing what is essentially pity porn? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's something that I've been quite quite aware of as well. Um, uh, I mean, that was part of the reason with the screening as well. You know, I did initially want to show something like 
five broken cameras or Anna's children and stuff, which were documentaries that really had an impact on me because they were places that I had visited and I'd connected with the characters in that film and gotten to know them on a personal level. But then I also felt as though it was also playing sort of into the narrative of excessive violence and things like that, which is still an element of life in Palestine, and I don't want to, you know... We're not glossing over that. No, definitely not, but I also feel like, you know, to enable people to connect with a situation that's so far away and so difficult to connect with as well, I sort of wanted to show, um, you know, things that people are doing, creative things that people are doing that, you know, we can connect with, you know, and political expression through the arts is something that is universal. And, you know, I sort of don't want to... I hope, anyway, that my photos aren't, you know, kind of victimising. I, I want to sort of show the strength in the people that I met. Um, but I guess we'll wait and see how the uh, Palestinian community respond to, to it all. The fact that you're also making sure that it's not just your work being represented in mm. your perspective, but you're showing multiple perspective of works by Gaza-based artists um, and, and other pa- Palestinian artists as well. So you're creating a dialogue through art and through your work with the, the work of people from Palestine and from the occupied West Bank as well. Yeah. So I think that's an, a really important element of the project yeah. too. Yeah, and I mean, I know the photos, you know, are my personal experience, and of course it's going to be subjective and I can't really do anything about that, but I hope that, you know, what people see through that is the beauty in the people that I that I found and that I met and, you know, the strength in the experiences that we shared. So... And uh, as the people there said, to exist is to resist. Absolutely. Jess, thanks very much for joining us. And I hope tomorrow night is a great success. Thanks, Richard. Richard Watts taking you through till midday on Smart Arts. We've been talking a bit about dance because we're in the midst of Dance Massive, the uh, biennial contemporary dance festival which is presented by Arts House, Malt House and Dance House in conjunction with Dance Victoria. Uh, and there's so much to talk about that rather than have every artist come in individually, in which case I would just have to do nothing but talk about dance for, for three or four weeks on end, I thought I would get two of my favourite choreographers to come in at once to talk about their new works for Dance Massive. Lucy Guerin from Lucy Guerin Inc. is presenting Motion Picture and Philip Adams Ballet Lab is presenting Kingdom, both at Arts House. And uh, Lucy and Philip join me in the studio now. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Richard. Now... I'm going to get you, first of all, to describe your thoughts of one another's work. Lucy, if you were going to see a ballet lab show, or Philip, if you were going to see a show by Lucy Guerin, Inc., what would you be anticipating? You're up first, Lucy. I wouldn't dare. (laughs) I have no problems in answering that. Um, I have to say that um, Philip is one of the choreographers whose work I always look forward to. Mm. Um, It's always something different, it's creative, it's incredibly imaginative and uh, I never quite know what to expect and, you know, there's there's highs and lows and mostly highs, Phil, but, um, you know, there, there's just a real sense of the unexpected and, and it's not predictable, it's not your run-of-the-mill show, it's, it's something that 
is got I know is going to excite me on some level. So I think by the sounds of it, I was just talking to Phil a bit before, Kingdom is no exception. Oh, Lizzie, I'm blushing. <laughs> True, <laughs> Phil. Back at you. I, certainly Richard, I, you know, I think Lucy is a true craftsman. She is a choreographic artist and has always led that style in this country. I can hark back at all of the works which I've seen of yours, and I pretty much attended all of them, Lucy, and design being one of the mo- defining motifs of the work and how the body is so stylishly integrated and investigated through all of her experimental and choreographic ovation of the years that she's contributed to the Melbourne dance scene. And may I add to that, the early incarnation of her works in New York, which blew me away as a young man. I was thrilled and inspired and still am today when I go to see a Lucy Guerin work. And the dancers are always the best. One of the things I'm really looking forward to, Lucy, about motion picture, the new work, is that it uh, is drawing upon one of my favourite films noir, DOA, which kind of like has this, amongst other things, the fact that it begins so frenetically with a, a, a dying man bursting into a police station to announce, to report a murder being his own, which is a great hook to a film. Uh, and then there's that insane jazz scene kind of later in the piece, which is just a wonderful, dramatic encapsulation of perhaps what mainstream America thought jazz nightclubs looked like. So it's got that kind of beatnik sensibility mixed with that kind of noir crime feeling as well. Why choose this film to to build a work around? Well, um, I should explain that uh, in the performance, the film is projected behind the audience, so it's it's read by the dancers on stage almost like a uh, a musical score. So the dancers are watching the film above the audience's head. So I thought it was important to. Uh, use a film that is a genre that people are familiar with Um, and when I I looked through a lot, a lot, a lot of film noir movies um, DOA, it's got this real, um, as you say this switching of locations and of of sound, of types of, and even the acting style. I mean, it's 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 a brilliant film but it it does go a little bit all over the place which um, uh, is... But in this case, is a real uh, advantage because it gives us a lot of um, different tones and textures and moods and environments to respond to as performers. So the the audience are essentially almost trapped between the performance and the film. Yes, they are, and there's also a um, the set design is also a screen on the stage behind the dancers, which is a much more sort of subtle use of mainly mainly light and and kind of frames and degradation of film which sort of reflects the um the demise of poor old Frank Bigelow as he as he rushes around trying to find his killer after being administered a luminous toxin in the nightclub. Which uh, looks wonderful and dramatic. So, And, uh, Philip, this notion of, of risk, um, uh, can tell us about that in, in terms of your work, in terms of creating kingdom. Ooh, well, I certainly laid down the queer baton this time, Richard. I've invited three of my peers and dancers, choreographers and independent uh, success in their own right today, working internationally for that matter, um, are commissioned 
quartet where we invited each other into a process and to see where those egos would go in the room. So not that this has been a difficult two-year collaboration, but I feel that what has become apparent in our kingdom is a surrendering to each other's practice and being available for that and to allow for the... I'd say the radical fairy, the utopia collective of men's business working together to be elaborated in a queer or let's perhaps define maybe later what that could possibly mean or is kingdom uh, contributing to the discourse of what queer means. So where the risk lies is, is in fact between the four of us. How far were we or and now are willing to go in order to present our queer body in the capacity that we have together? Now, one of the things that strikes me about as, as a commonality between both your, your approaches to work, and you, obviously you, you work very, very differently and you have different uh, outcomes, but um, uh, an importance of design seems to, to be a, a central element to both your works. Why is design important to you both as choreographers and artists? Um, design is important. Uh, it's... I guess I guess it's the medium in which I find the most sort of st- stimulating kind of dialogue with, um, and it 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 frames the work. It's um, it's oh, it, I think oh now I'm going to get stuck, Richard. But I I think that it's it it, it is the it is a medium which best um, stimulates what 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 I'm doing. Phil? Is this a a sense of vulnerability and you've fractured yourself outside of the dancing body? And I know particularly in my case, and I'm sure in Lucy too to some degree, I'm I'm a little bit more architectural and experimental in that capacity. Um, I tend to think that dance is only the starting point in which design can then in some way... You know, I talk about vicissitude. I think about the unwelcomed entity, the object, or the desire to position the physical dancing body not as or the other. And collaboration is the defining point. The moment you invite somebody else's voice into a creative process and you ask them to design an experience, to design an architecture, to design a visual setting for a ballet or a moving body or an action body or a projected body, in Lucy's case here, in her work, there becomes an open-ended dialogue which has insurmountable problems <laughs> that, um, that obviously need to be solved. And so without those ingredients there, it doesn't explode the canon as much as you want the body to be between, say, a gallery space or in a cinematic space, but to deploy new models and new ways of thinking around what it is to design for contemporary moving culture and not dance culture. So we could talk about next generation, new <clears throat> the rise of the gallery box and the black box, but that's something that Dance are going to be addressing in their forum coming up as part of their um, their program. Yeah. yeah. Yep, I'm speaking of that forum that's on uh, th- next Thursday afternoon, Friday, Saturday over at Footscray Community Arts Centre, the Australian Dance Forum, which uh, I'm getting along to uh, very much looking forward to two and a half days of discussion about that that I'll be reporting on for Arts Hub. Um, Lucy, collaboration, talk to us about 
uh, the importance of collaboration in your practice? Because I'm, for example, with uh, with motion picture, you've got the likes of Stephanie Lake, an accomplished choreographer in her own right, as well as a great dancer, Alastair McIndoe, who uh, who dances, designs. So uh, bringing in these elements, and similarly, Phil, for you with the, uh, with Kingdom, your new piece, as you've already said, bringing in other choreographers to make work with. That must be quite challenging in a way to try to unite a vision uh, and to a degree kind of lay your own vision over the top of theirs. Uh, it is challenging, but it's in, with this particular group of people, it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and I, I think that once dancers have begun making their own work, they, they're in some ways a lot more generous to the creative process because they, they they begin to understand, you know, what that perspective is of, of the director and and to kind of sink into sort of supporting that um, in a different way than a than a sort of a young dancer who's very um, focused on their own kind of presentation in the performance space um, and. The performers that I've got for this show are just really outstanding and they have contributed a huge amount to this this work, both in creating material but just in their in their sort of um, abilities to kind of ride that that space between drama and abstract dance, which I'm playing with a lot in this work, that, that they can be dramatic but it's in a sort of a uh, not an overt sort of over the top way it's sort of it's almost like choreographic drama if i can if i can put it that way so it's been a it's been a really interesting and quite quite thrilling process um, to work with them on this project mm. yes collaboration and sort of bouncing off what lucy was saying there it's it's a means to to be a better artist to improve and educate my role and what i want to contribute over the many years of starting from the dance body and then moving into the more visual impact that I create now. And now asking Luke George, Rennie McDougall and Matthew Day, the commissioned artist, to come into that design space with me. I've been hugely inspired by their practice and in, in the process I've come out we have come out as better artists, shall we say. We've, we've costumed this work, we have designed this work, and we've written the sound for this work. And, uh, you know, hats off to us, love it or hate it, as you know, with Ballet Lab, it can incite fury as much as it can incite, it could be an ecstatic experience. And so I feel like the four of us together are offering this design, this costume, this queer thinking, this complex set of rules that we have with each other and working with each other and that is conceptually a collaborative designed space and we set it up as this sort of say a playground a cubby house a conceptual kingdom of color boards objects crowns designed by Paul Yore, a um, Sydney-based artist, and his partner Devin Ackerman. As much as Matthew Day, one of the choreographers, has set himself a very difficult task in rearranging the entire set as work, as men working on site. So this is, a, this is part of the ongoing um, discourse that we are working towards Wednesday night's premiere <laughs> as I have a little bit of tremble in my voice. Yes. Uh, and you too, Lucy, I know you premiere. Tuesday night, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, Phil used the phrase making, making ourselves better artists through mm. collaboration. Does that resonate with you, Lucy? Yes, very much so. I mean, I think especially as a more experienced practitioner I think you you kind of you know you burn up in a way all your exuberance and your sort of ideas and I mean 
yeah, we still have them, but but I think there's more there's more space um, in in which to kind of be inspired by other people and to sort of have. Uh, I suppose almost like the limitations of having to um, accommodate or um, uh, integrate somebody else's vision into your own, it becomes it becomes much much more exciting. Or it has for me as I've as I've um, progressed. Speaking of other people's visions, uh, what else is there that's on as part of Dance Massive that you uh, are excited to see or perhaps have already seen or uh, anticipating? Um, I saw Anthony Hamilton and Alastair McIndoe's meeting the other night, which was hugely inspiring for me. It's a very kind of contained, minimalist work. Um, with 64 robots. With 64 pencil robots. Did you see it? Sadly, I'm Richard? not going to get the chance because oh. of clashes with other shows. I, but, yeah, it was on my list, but yeah. with a festival, it's just one of those things. It but was really fabulous. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Kingdom, Phil's and the guy's work. Um, I'm going to see Tim Darbyshire's work um, at the meat market and Melanie Lane's work, Merge, that working with visual two visual artists I'm also very excited about. I love the idea of the studio works. I like to see what's happening in the backdrop, huh? like what's merging out of, that, out of the uh, studio and the malt house is staging a series of three works by Joe Lloyd, Natalie Curcio and I think Sandra Parker, which all of our RSVP'd for, along with some of the more um, celebrated larger works such as Force Majeure's opening tonight. Yep. But I've also got to say... I'm a big fan and always have been of Shelley Lassica. Yes, Real me too. icon, diehard aficionado, even maybe just one a generation above me. And <laughs> not to give away age, but she has an incredible uh, smorgasbord of collaborators in her practice coming up as part of the Dance House series in the gymnasium. I know, I'm really intrigued taking dance out of the, 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 the theatre, out of the studio, and placing it in kind of a, a basketball court, I do believe. So that should be an intriguing work to see. Um, there is so much to see at Dance Massive. I don't think it, it may be possible to see it all if you put your life on hold for two weeks and do nothing else but see contemporary dance. So uh, I'm, I've got other festivals to attend, and so I can't see everything. But I am very much looking forward to seeing Lucy Guerin Inc.'s motion picture, its world premiere uh, at Arts House North Melbourne Town Hall, and Philip Adams' Ballet Lab, the new show Kingdom, also having its world premiere, also uh, at Arts House, uh, but at the Meat Market. Lucy, Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio together. Thanks, Thank Richard. Thank you, Richard. I just want to say I love your T-shirt, by the way. Uh, the listeners, it says Venice Khan. Footscray. <laughs> I like your style. Footscray you. Community Arts Centre, keeping it real. You're tuned to Triple R. We're going to talk about Chapel of Chapel, which, as its name suggests, is located in uh, Little Chapel Street, just off Chapel Street in Paran. Um, and it's celebrating... It's 20th anniversary as a venue in supporting uh, culture in Melbourne. Joining us to, uh, to celebrate and tell us more, to tell us partially how it made it to 20 years, uh, we have Ibrahim Mustafa, the marketing manager and production liaison officer at Chapel of Chapel. How's it going? Very well. Thanks for having us. Uh, and uh, Michael Dalton, a.k.a. Dolly Diamond, but uh, not as Dolly, but as his fine self. Yes, I'm butching it up. <laughs> <laughs> My version of... 
How many years have you performed at Chapel of Chapel out of interest? Because you've been there for been doing shows there for a while. Yeah, well, I was living in London and coming over to visit and working there, which was great. You know, this was the very first place I ever did in Melbourne, and that was in 2004. So it's been a while, and uh, I, I get, I've obviously watched something grow, you know. Um, but it was, uh, you know, not to uh, be too kind in the in the sense that it was great when I got there. I loved it, you know. It's one of those venues where instantly made to feel welcome. I think, you know, and uh, it's a great space, two great spaces, the loft and the chapel. Yeah. So um, it opened in 1995. Yes. Um, and so for for any venue to run successfully for 20 years is a sign that something is going right. What is going right at the place? What is what makes Chapel of Chapel work? For me, the diversity of what we have, like, you know, any night of the week you can see something different, like you can go see dance, and then there'll be an opera, there'll be comedy, there'll be musicals and the, I think the, the, the biggest thing is that we can bring to audience shows that you would never think of seeing, like for example in the Heights we had for the last three weeks, a massive musical overseas, but to have it in the premiere in Melbourne was amazing yeah like you know little little boutique musicals that we can able to showcase is what makes people come back and who's the audience is it locals is it from uh from across melbourne is it mainly south side who comes to chapel off chapel i think it's quite diverse um depending on what the show it is a lot of the you know producers bring their um, own audiences like depending if it's musical theater you're going to be having a lot of musical theater lovers coming from all over the place. Um, for example, going back to In the Heights, we had people coming from interstate to see that show. Wow. Yeah. But a lot of... We do have a lot of local residents come and see shows at Chapel of Chapel and a lot of, you know, city folk and Northside... Yeah, so it's quite diverse. I know as a Northsider, I have been known to make the trek yeah. across town. On, Thank you very you know, much. Jumping on the Chapel <laughs> Street tram, for example, and heading over. So, yeah. Uh, when you perform there, Michael, tell us about the audience that you get. Who who, who comes in, well, I in was your com- eyes? I was um, completely unknown when I started. So it was just um, it was Dolly Diamond and a show was called Songs That I Like and Shows That I Didn't Get. Um, so it was those all those sort of you know audition experiences and things, which obviously weren't true because it was about Dolly, you know. She didn't really audition for that much. Um, and uh, it was a diverse crowd, which I love. And, uh, I mean, you get, you get, as you mentioned, you get that local audience, mm. but also um, I think people that, are, that like the venue, you know, that know the venue is going to put on something that's, you know, of a standard that yeah, they're used to. And um, so I, I, like, I like the fact that you get a really mixed audience, and, uh, and that continues now to this day. And, um, uh, you know, it is a GLBTI audience. It is a it is a mum and dad, and uh, depending on what the gig is, it's a family audience as well. Yeah, for, for example, we have a one night we've got a kids show, a very hungry little caterpillar coming up soon. Don't miss it. Yes, and then uh, during the day, and then in the evening we've got Avenue Q for the comedy festival. So yeah. the the audience is so diverse, and I love that about Chapel of Chapel. Hopefully, the kids <laughs> coming along to see the very hungry caterpillar don't go. Oh, mummy, daddy, look a puppet show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Puppet show. show. Let's go see that too. Exactly. Yeah, that could be slightly terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, having seen a production of Avenue Q a few years ago, the fact that I walked home humming the internet is, is for porn, <laughs> kind of uh, maybe not something that you want the five year, no. three, four, five year olds who are seeing the very hungry caterpillar kind of uh, humming <laughs> as well. Right. I do actually know someone who took her son to see a production of Avenue Q and he was fine with it. He was a mature kid, but yeah. then he did run around at school kind of uh, singing the internet is for porn, yeah, right. which maybe you know, didn't go over that well with no, the teachers. I bet and, it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of 
of the 20th birthday celebrations. Um, what's coming up? Give us a couple of the highlights. Well, for me, um, we've got this covered. On Monday night, we're starting off with Andy Cook and Lauren Hunter, who are doing a musical mashup of songs from Beyonce to Gershwin. That they're from... They're actually musical theatre stars. They're in both in Strictly Ballroom as we speak. And they're doing their own kind of cabaret of musical mashups, which would be fun. And we also had the premiere of a new dance works called Parallax from Vertical Shadows Dance Company, which I'm very excited about as well. Uh, Dolly Diamond, I see, is performing. Yeah, she gets a Guernsey in there, yes. yes. Um, it's an evening with Dolly, which is on the Thursday night, and uh, really it's just a, one of those ones where you get to sort of revisit, you know, because I think I've done there about six or seven times over the years, maybe more, I think, um, and uh, it just gives me an opportunity to revisit some of those songs that you wouldn't normally do, you know, that you can do on a night like that, which um, is a, you know, it, I, I, I like that. I think the Wednesday night is Mama Alto as well. Yeah. If you've never seen Mama Alto, an incredibly unique voice and a great performer. And uh, but that's what the week is, isn't it? Yeah, so I think Lyric Opera is in there as well, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, in, in the chapel. Presenting yeah. two masterpieces. And also we've got a really great musical theatre writing duo called Ben, um, ben Nicholson and Nick Hedger who are presenting their works as well on the Friday night. So each night of the week is quite different and we're trying to keep the prices Affordable, so it's twenty-five dollars for most of the shows. For the dance show, it's thirty-five per person. But we're just keeping it a flat rate, so you can come every night. <laughs> yeah. So Chapel Off Chapel's twentieth anniversary celebrations are running from the sixteenth until the twenty-second of March at Chapel Off Chapel, twelve Little Chapel Street, Paran. Uh, and there is also an exhibition uh, yeah. running for the for the the twentieth anniversary. Yeah, and this is um, uh, what a, a collection of posters and artwork. No, it's a collection of artists that we're inviting back to present their works. Okay. Yeah, so we've, um, there's going to be over 20 of them. It's going to be sculpture, jewellery, um, paintings. So we're going to have a retrospect, which is that's what yeah. it's called, yeah. yeah. So that, the, the venue, obviously, over the years, we, we go to the venue and ask, you know, to put on our, to produce our own gigs. And this week has been, the turnaround has been that the chapel have asked us, you know, so that they're the, they're the ones really producing it as such. We're just there to perform on our individual night. Uh, so it's really a gift back from chapel in a way, and which is which is lovely as us for us. Yeah. And um, happiest? Happiest? Yeah. <laughs> ha- happy 20th anniversary. Thanks, Thanks so mate. much. Cheers. time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this week. I'll be back next Thursday between 9am and midday to uh, talk more about the arts. Catch you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.